welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Mason. This is a show about books and the people who write them. Each week we feature conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. Being in business and surviving in tough economic times are themes that the two books we have on today's show have in common. Michael O'Malley translates lessons that he learned while keeping bees into strategies to help organizations survive and thrive during uncertain economic times in his book, The Wisdom of Bees, published by Penguin. Co-authors and small business owners Lynn and Philip Spry use their own experience to create survival strategies for the small business owner in their book, 19 Ways to Survive, Small Business Strategies for a Tough Economy, published by Self Council Press. Dr. Michael O'Malley is a social psychologist and a management consultant. He's also currently the executive editor for Business, Economics, and Law at Yale University Press. In addition, he's an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. And he's been an avid beekeeper since 2002. Now, that's important because today he's with us to talk about his wonderful book, The Wisdom of Bees, What the Hive Can Teach Business About Leadership, Efficiency, and Growth. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Cheryl. It's good to be here. You know, I told you when you and I first started talking today before I poked the buttons for us to start recording, I really, really like this book because it's a unique approach, and I really like the ideas, and I like the idea of the 25 insights or principles that you've got in the book. Let's give the listeners a little bit of an overview, and then let's talk about some specifics. Okay. Um, well, the overview is, um, well, it, you know, it started harmlessly enough when we, when we did get our, our hive, as you mentioned, back in 2002, and as a management consultant, I would sit there and observe the bees, and knowing that they've been around for over 100 million years, I, I figure they must be doing something right in the hive. And so I started to, you know, study them and, and have over the past many years and really discovered that they do a lot of things in the hive to be efficient that you know, I think companies should be cognizant of. So I thought it offered, in a general sense, a way of thinking about what we do in our own institutions, but be able to relate it, you know, to the hive to sort of uh, highlight or underscore certain principles that the that the bees use. I agree with you, and I think that the current movement, trend, maybe saturation of every organization right now is to put people together in teams. And as I read through the principles and the ideas and, and even the learning that you have in the book about bees and the way that they work together and communicate, I thought, wow, this really does apply so well to the current business climate because we all need to work better together. Yeah, well, you know, the... Um the hive, you know, a lot of people think that the queen does all the work, that it's really her messages that that control all the behavior and activity in the hive. But in truth, most of the daily decisions that the bees make are done uh, outside of the bees, uh, of the queen's control. 
that is it the the beehive really is a an empowered organization the a lot of the uh, authority is decentralized so i would say it's you know probably the prototype of an empowered decentralized organization but the point you make is that if you want to be empowered then you should do what the bees do and that is they have a great knowledge management system there's a place they go in the hive to know to find out what's going on outside the hive and inside the hive they're great communicators they have 17 different communication signals uh, that they use and as you mentioned they train each other so you know they're well equipped to do the work they communicate well and they coordinate their activities through this knowledge management system so they have all the other things in place that make decentralization work for them and i think you put your finger on a pulse because when the big organizations like robert half and associates do surveys of business organizations and they they send out those big things and have everybody answer their questions and they publish the results in some of the stellar magazines it seems that communication is always problematic. It always comes out as one of the top ten, at least, issues within organizations. Let's talk about bees and intelligence and how they communicate and how can we, let's give our listeners some takeaways, how can we, thinking about what the bees do, make our communication better? Well, I, you know, they, um, of course, you know, their their great communication is their their waggle dance, and it's very it's very straightforward and it's very succinct and it's very clear. So their waggle dance tells other bees where to go to find something, such as nectar, how far to go, and how good it's going to be when you get there. So with a very simple, succinct. Uh, communication, a bee is able to tell other bees precisely where to go for information, how to find it. So simplicity, clarity, succinctness. Also, uh, there is consistency in their um, communication. So, for example, when bees swarm, they form like this loose, like a soccer ball on a tree, you know, waiting for scouts to tell them, you know, where their next home should be. And when they find, when somebody finds a home and they vote on it and they decide where where they should move, there are bees that tell the hive, that tell the swarm where to go. There are these streaker bees that shoot through the swarm in the direction of the new home. And the bees closest to the streakers follow the streaker bees. Those bees that see the other bees moving with the streaker follow them and so forth. But there's been research that shows if a researcher disrupts that communication, the consistency and direct unified direction of it by putting by sending bees in, say, a perpendicular uh direction across the moving swarm, the bees get lost. So uh they uh they start following other other bees and you know those bees follow them and they never find their home. So I think one of the things, one of the elements that I illustrate in the book is that communication has to be uniform and consistent for the bees to find their way, otherwise they get lost. And isn't boy, isn't that the truth in organizations? I mean, and communication is difficult enough as it is, and clarity in communication is, I think, one problem that people have because there are so many different pieces 
in that communication puzzle. And what we think we hear is not always what someone intended to say. Well, you know, bees have a couple other advantages in communication. First of all, they don't communicate what isn't necessary. So, for instance, bees don't have any signal that tells other bees where not to go because it's not that's not critical information. The bees, you know, who are already there know it's a bad spot. Bees who are in a good spot don't want to go to the bad spot, and bees in the hive don't want to go there. So there's there's no communication for bees to tell them, you know, don't go to there because it's a bad. So they they're not wasteful of what they have to say. Also, they listen and, you know, I'll anthropomorphize a little bit, trust each other. So when a bee says, you know, go there, but the bee was there a couple hours ago, say, and there was nothing there, they don't look at the bee and say, well, you know, I was there a couple hours ago. I know there's nothing there. They actually go. And look at and look for themselves. And so. double check. Yeah, exactly. So when another bee says something, the, the bee that's listening or attentive to what that bee has is saying, actually goes and checks it out. They don't, you know, they don't say, well, so and so said something else, or I don't believe you, you know. <laughs> so there's a lot of what we would describe behaviorally as trust in the hive. What are some of the most important of the 25 lessons that you have in the book? I mean. I, they're all important, but I know that perhaps some leap out a little more than others. Communication, for me, was one of the top ones, and maybe it's because of what I do or, or what I perceive as a problem for most organizations. But what do you think? Well, I'll let me pick up. Uh, I think it's actually one of the – I don't spend a lot of time in the book on it, but uh, as a consultant um, – I, I think it's one of the most important things, and it's related to communication. And that is the bees actually, when when uh, nectar foragers return to the hive, they actually hand the nectar off to bees that are waiting to receive it. And the how long it takes a bee to find a receiver is really telling about what uh, it's telling about what conditions are like on the outside. So if they're finding uh, a receiver bee really quickly, they know they're not bringing in enough nectar. If they have to wait around a long time, they know conditions are really good outside and it's hard to find the receiver. So what they're doing is directly through feedback linking the outside world to conditions within the hive and then they rearrange their operations to accommodate those conditions. So I think one of the most important things the bees do is provide feedback that tells the hive exactly what is going on in the outside world. So the linkage there is very clear. So I think that's number one. I think number two, which is you know maybe number one, because I think all of the activity in the hive is really subservient to this one principle, and that is to protect the future. The bees are not short-term maximizers. If you look at efficiency in the short term in the hive, they're not efficient. What they are is efficient over the long term and over a broad geographic area. So they're always trying to to anticipate what might happen next and to guard against worst-case scenarios. If the bees find a, a, a great patch of nectar, the entire hive does not rush out to mine it, to harvest it, no matter how good it is, 
because the bees know that the nectar in that place will disappear with time. So they always have to have uh, a foraging force on the lookout for the new next thing. So they always have research and development going on while they're harvesting from the best place. So, you know, it's not like uh, subprime mortgages where everyone rush, rushes out to make <laughs> to make money all at once. You know, they know that things will. They know that the environment and conditions will change, and they have to be prepared uh, for the ensuing conditions. So, protect the future is probably the foremost rule of the hive. You talked about in the book there were four basic areas that you really got into that were competing demands for the bees, and you just talked about one of them, short-term versus long-term. Yes. And then you also talked about individuality versus community, well, the flexibility, uh, and it, right. versus change. Yes. So they're always trying to manage these dilemmas, but they always, you know, they always resolve it in a particular way. So they, I mean, it's not that they, so it's, the future versus short term. They don't neglect the short term, but they keep their eye on the long term. They are decentralized, but there are certain things, they, but they do need a certain amount of community and social harmony as well. So, yes, you know, so they're all working toward the same purpose, the same goals. Also, the hive does not allow individual workers, for instance, to lay their own eggs, they don't. They're they're actually prevented by other workers from um, engaging in what would be sort of private, personal gain behavior. So individuality, but social harmony, flexibility, but stability. And I actually think one of the biggest ahas for me was the whole value of diversity in the hive. The idea of the more diverse the hive, the more productive it is uh, over time. And the reason is that when a, <clears throat> when a hive has more diverse bees in it, um, and basically they have the hive has more fathers is really what diversity is in the hive. Uh, they actually are more sensitive to a wider range of social cues and environmental cues. So they harvest from more flowers. They travel further distances, uh, they're more sensitive uh, to a, a wider range of, you know, nectar-providing flowers and so forth. But it also, but they also, because they respond at different times, they actually, it's a stabilizing force. It's like the, the hive keeps, bees keep the hive at a, a relatively constant temperature, for instance, between 93 and 95 degrees. And they contract their muscles and flap their wings to heat and cool the hive. But they don't all turn on and off at, at the same time uh, because they're differentially sensitive. Some turn on, some turn off, and so forth. And what that does is it keeps the, the temperature from oscillating or varying too, too much. It's like if you had crew members on a ship and the ship started to tilt. Um, if you... If, a hive wasn't diverse, or if a company wasn't diverse, all the people would suddenly run to the other side to to right the the tilt. But then you would create a tilt in the other direction, and everybody would run back, and the tilt would you know get the swings would get greater and greater until the ship capsized. Well, the bees prevent that because only certain of the crew members would run to the other side to try to right it. And if 
conditions continued to vary, then more would go. So this diversity, this turning on and off at different times and having this uh, a broader array of sensitivities to more things actually keeps the hive stable. So to me, you know, diversity was one of the great is one of the great things of the hive. And I loved it in the book when you said that the term worker bee is not a negative term because I think many of us have associated that with a very low level and that we do all the work and those kinds of things. But that's not what it really means to you. No, no. The worker bee is the the core. It's the heart of the hive. It's the essence of the hive. The worker bees are are the ones that make the hive work. Without them, you know, it would just it would fail. I mean, the, the uh, so the workers is the you know really sort of the foundation of the hive. And and as I already mentioned, there's a lot of development, individuality uh, associated with uh, individual choice, you know, associated with the worker bee. So, yeah, now I don't, I don't know how it ever got to be a neg- negative connotation because there is a lot of, um, because what they do really is, you know, it, it, the, survi- you know the high wouldn't survive without them. If you could leave the listeners with three takeaways, from our conversation today about the book, what would you like for them to take away from our conversation? Well, about well about the book, I think uh, I think first of all, I think the uh, twenty five lessons in the hive, and there's really there's really more sort of embedded throughout, but I think it really serves. Uh, you you have a a new application about business principles that. For the most part, people ought to be aware of, but now they can see actually how it works in practice in the hive and what and what makes it work. So I would say uh, one of the takeaways is just a new way of thinking about the organization. And I know people who have read the book have told have written to me and said, you know, oh, I've started to think, what would a bee do? Uh, in this situation, <laughs> right? So, so I think it's not a it's not a bad way of thinking about it. I think the other, you know, if I was to name just another thing, you know, bees fail. Um, the I think the other thing that you would uh, take away from this is that not all hives survive. Uh, so the bees are b- by no far uh, perfect. I mean, they are from an evolutionary standpoint they are tremendously successful but they're not perfect and so i think another takeaway is what i would call leadership imperfections and that is how do you actually survive and thrive when uh you can't be perfect and the bees cannot be perfect because they don't know what's going to happen either in the future but what they do is they guard against they're very good at prediction they're very good at protecting themselves against worst-case scenarios. They're very good at building redundancy into the hive. Uh, and, they, uh, and they're not deterred by failure. If a sw- one swarm doesn't work, there'll be another swarm, and that swarm will swarm. So I think one of the keys is for, the, for the hive is how do, you, how do you actually thrive when you exist in a climate where it's not 
perfectly predictable. And I think the bees actually illustrate very well what you need to do to uh, to be successful in these very uncertain, changeable environments. Their environment changes by the hour, and yet they're able to sort of rearrange themselves and adapt to those conditions. So that, to me, is sort of is very instructive in the book. Well, I think the book is just terrific. I really, really enjoyed it. And I want to thank you for taking time out of what I know is an extremely busy schedule to be our guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, if our listeners want to know more about you, want to know more about bees, want to know more (laughs) about the wisdom of bees, your book, where should they go? I know you have a website. Well, they can go to thewisdomofbees.com. And they can read excerpts from the book there. We have um, the first uh, lesson is in there and some uh the introduction. And then Roxanne Quimby, the um, found, co-founder of Burt's Bees, wrote the uh, foreword to the book. So you can see what a uh, an entrepreneur and businesswoman has to say about the wisdom of bees. So you can go to thewisdomofbees.com and, and see quite a bit there. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much again for talking with us. Thank you. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. We'd like to encourage you to take a look at our website. We have a blog where we talk about who we're interviewing on the show and what current books we've gotten hold of. We also have a This Week to let you know what shows are up and running this week. You'll see recommended reading lists, and we try to really keep you up on what's going on here inside the Writer's Cafe. Our guests today are co-authors Lynn and Philip Spry. Lynn Spry graduated from Cornell University with a degree in electrical engineering. She worked for Anderson Consulting in information technology, and she has experience in development, project management, quality assurance, and she's even been a database administrator. She also worked for Prudential Financial as the Director of Quality Control. Philip Spry is a veteran of the U.S. Army, and he's also worked in the field of information technology for Fortune 500 companies such as Prudential Financial, Anderson Consulting, and IBM. And we thought we were going to have both Lynn and Philip Spry joining us today to talk about their book, 19 Ways to Survive, Small Business Strategies for a Tough Economy. But, Lynn, welcome, because (laughs) Philip couldn't join us. Yes. um, Unfortunately, one of our customers, actually close friends, had a fire last night at their business. So they have been there since about midnight dealing with putting it out, and now this morning they called and said that they needed help trying to see if they had uh, their computer's working. Um, we run a computer store, and we help them with that. But my husband got down there just a couple minutes before this interview started, and he had some very good news for them, which was that because they had been keeping their computers under the desk, the sprinklers that went off did not get the computers wet. So apparently they have all of their data, and they are properly insured, so they are going to be able to recover their business. So it's good news, bad news, but... At least they had the right people doing the right things at the right time. And maybe we should start a new trend. Companies, put your computers under your desk (laughs) (laughs) every evening before you leave. I love the idea of your book. Let's give our listeners just a little bit of an overview and then let you and I talk about some specifics. 
Okay. Well, my husband and I actually wrote this book for all the small business owners out there, like us, who are, were struggling to survive. Because we had a lot of challenges that we were facing, and we found a lot of solutions. And once we got back on our feet and realized that we were able to not only succeed but even grow, we opened another store last year. We said, you know what, this is information and we want to get out to people. This helped us, and we think it can help other people. So we put this book together, and Self Counsel Press picked it up and published it uh, this spring. Well, and I say congratulations, and your timing could not be better. Every day on the news, we hear about the number of people who are unemployed and can't find a job. And when I looked at the book, one of the things that struck me was, you know, if I were one of those people, and if it's been a year and you've been searching for a job and you just can't find anything in that job market, then taking 19 Ways to Survive Small Business Strategies for a Tough Economy and looking at the blueprint that you've put there and thinking maybe I could go into my own business or maybe I can do something now until I can find that job. That's what struck me as such a positive message. And that's actually a really good idea. One of the things that we keep seeing in this market is people are surviving and people are actually doing really well. And you know the economy is going to rebound. So the companies that are here right now and learn how to be a successful business in this economy, you know that as soon as the the economy starts growing again, what's going to happen? The companies that have become reliable, stable, fixtures in the community, those are the ones that are going to really take off and start growing quickly. And one of the things that people need to realize is when you do a business, you don't even need a storefront all the time. You know, you can start a business from your home and build up those customer reputations and build up those relationships so that you can open a a storefront or something like that or when you start growing further. So there are a lot of opportunities, even in this economy. You hear about things all the time where, I mean, let's face it, Apple started in somebody's garage. And we tend to kind of think that maybe those opportunities are over, but they're not because I read – I love the fashion section, I'll confess. I really enjoy reading that. And there are several – stories that I've read recently about people who have had ideas for things like t-shirts or some kind of um, maybe an object that they've invented and they've started exactly as you said they did something online it started out small it grew and now they have done exactly what you said. They've moved into a storefront so that now they have walked Exactly. Out. And especially what you can tap for that are people that you know. My husband, for instance, has some friends that were recently let go from the companies that they worked for. They were doing international roles, doing project management. So he said, you know what? We have computers that we can sell to places like, you know, uh, Latin American countries, and these people have relationships there. So he automatically brought them in, started talking to them, and actually started exporting to Latin America. So all so, of a sudden you guys are an international <laughs> operation. And it's true, but it came from knowing other people that were looking for an opportunity, figuring out what their skills were, and applying it to you know, some some asset that you had available. Like you were saying, it might be T-shirts, it could be fashion, it could be an Internet site. But it's just taking those opportunities and growing them. It's really amazing what people can come up with. The networking idea. I think that that's something that people hear and they think, well, I don't really know how to do that. I don't. <laughs> should I go to the Chamber of Commerce meetings? 
how do I network? How do I do this? Yeah, that's actually one of the ways that we we outlined in so much detail in the book because there are so many ways to really tap into your community and your friends and your family and your, you know, neighbors to build your business. One of um one of the ways that we do it is we actually share advertising with people. So, for instance, there's an Italian restaurant a couple doors down from us. We're a computer store. So, obviously, we don't get this we're not in competition. But you know what? We have our little ads in their store. They have their advertising in our store. And when somebody comes by talking about a restaurant, we recommend the restaurant and vice versa. There are so many ways to do that. There are barter opportunities where you can put your name out there on a barter company, which basically means that a barter company allows you to group with a whole bunch of people that are interested in trading services. So no longer do you have to find someone to trade exactly with. You can trade within this group. And let's say I trade for, I give computers to someone that's building a business to do, I don't know, hairstyling, but I don't want my hair cut. Well, I just get credit in the system, and then I can use any other barter service in exchange. So I can maybe get my accounting done that way. I mean, we saved $4,000 on our accounting alone the first year we joined that barter service. Wow. So there are, there are a lot of ways to actually find other business owners to deal with. Now, the barter service is listed in the book. Yes, there are actually a lot of them out online. We listed our two favorites that we're we're part of and that we join. And I know from personal experience, uh, a woman who does my nails, and she would be considered a small business person, she has done barter or trade out with a person who does massages. So she does that person's nails, and the other person does a massage. I mean, that's a small example of just a two-person trade out. But that's an example of bartering. Yep, and you can easily expand your income. When you were talking about people that might want to start a business, it's a great way to start because all of a sudden, you know, people don't have to necessarily spend cash. And right now, cash is tight. But if you can trade something you need for something they need, you still have to pay taxes on it appropriately, and the barter agencies will help you do all the right forms and whatnot. But you basically get customers you might not have had otherwise. I think that's a really important takeaway for our listeners to explore the idea of bartering. And it may not be something that they've thought about or even thought about looking at before because they may think to themselves, I don't have anything to trade. Yeah. And that's one thing that a barter agency does that helps you is it, it provides an environment that you can learn on. Because for me, for instance, I'm actually pretty shy. I'm not the type of person to walk up to another business owner and say, hey, you own a restaurant, you want to trade a computer for a dinner. That's not my personality. My husband, on the other hand, has been bartering since he was a child. He, his first trade was apparently his parents gave him a cow. They lived in like a rural area with a farm, and he managed to get another kid to trade it for a horse. Are so, you serious? Yes. That's incredible. So he's been bartering. Like, he's got barter in the blood. But the thing about a barter agency is for people like me that are a little bit, you know, more reluctant to just approach someone, it provides a list of all the businesses that want to barter. So you know who you can approach. You know they're already interested. You know they understand the concept. And honestly, within the first month we joined, we had thousands of dollars of new business and new business customers we wouldn't have had otherwise. So it was a real injection into our business of money that we could spend on things like accounting, lawyers, water. Actually, this bar, some of these companies have things like houses in there. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. Um, almost any service that you can get for your business. Our air conditioning broke. Barter guy came out and fixed it. So wow. it, 
it's a really easy way to expand very quickly. But and if you are already doing that or whatnot, there still is a lot that you can do within a business. Like if you do already have a storefront, you can suddenly start changing your environment in a way that really brings new customers in. One of the funny things that happened to us was uh, we hadn't changed our store since, oh, I don't know, for years. And I, I was showing my sister a picture of the store, showing her, oh, this is what it looks like. And she looked and she said, you're kidding. It looks like that. It's a mess. And <laughs> it was funny because you were talking about getting help from family. And sometimes you don't even think of things like, does this look neat the way it should? It's and when I started looking at it from her perspective, I realized, you know what, she's right. So we reorganized the entire store, spent literally zero dollars in cash to do it. We just changed the layout. We took some ideas from other owners about where to put things and whatnot. And within about a week, we completely changed everything. I knew we had done the right thing when a customer walked in and said, oh, wow, I didn't know you sold computers. <gasps> oh, my gosh. And that's the kind of thing where if your business is struggling and you don't know why products aren't selling the way they used to, something as simple as just redesigning your layout can change everything. Um, paint colors, oddly enough, give people a different impression. Where do you put a particular product that people are looking for? Any of these things, even though they sound really simple, you know, as the owner, you might get pretty complacent because it's always been like that. But when the economy changes, sometimes people aren't looking for you know, the high-end gaming computer anymore. They want the really cheap used computer. So now that should be in the front of your store and not the, the cool one that sold five years ago. One so, of the things about the book that I really like is that you have little tips in sort of boxes with little trees beside them <laughs> and, and little lifesavers, life preservers. You have a moneymaker tip, and then you have lifesavers. And I think... One of the things that happens with our brain is that we like little bits and bites of things. Yeah. Even if people go through and that's the first thing they read, they're going to pick up real nuggets of information, even if they think they don't have time to read a whole book. <laughs> if they go through and they look at those moneymaker tips and they look at those lifesavers, they'll still take something away for themselves. I'm so glad you said that because that was what they're there for. I know for me, I don't tend to sit down and read everything at once. Right. But I wanted someone to be able to go in and actually make money with this book. You know, they should be able to look at things that they that were in this book, make a change, and that day start seeing the results. And that was the way we tried to write it. Not for things that philosophically might make a difference years down the line, but things that you can do right now. And, you know, like even just little things like, selling everything. One of the strange things that people do that actually works and it worked for us is selling music. I mean, people listen to it in your store. They want to know who it is. You put the little CDs at the front and all of a sudden there's an extra sale. What we also did was we tied it into our community and we tried to find local musicians so that they could make money and get their music out and we could also make some money and sell their music. Right but that's something that could, could change tomorrow because a lot of these places will allow you to put the CDs, you know, and you can pay them as you go. That's a great idea. So, yeah, I mean, the, the point was really low-cost ideas that are going to actually bring in new dollars, because this is an economy people can survive in. There's no reason why you have to be closing today if you're willing to just make changes and try things and, frankly, occasionally fail, because that's the thing when you're taking a risk. You're taking a chance, you're making a change, and you have to be willing to find that change 
it's okay if it fails. Just do something else next. Make it better. One statement I thought was really interesting. It says in the book, you you can fire employees and improve morale as well as the bottom line. That sounds like heresy. <laughs> that was a really hard lesson for us to learn. That was a very hard lesson because, you know, as a business owner, you, you become friends with people and you really count on them. But one of the biggest, and this is just sort of like a bad thing that can happen, is if your employees aren't happy to be there, that feeling kind of rubs off on everyone. It rubs off on the coworkers. It rubs off on the customers. It rubs off on you. And it's, it might be hard to actually make the final decision that you have to let someone go, but there are times when letting someone go can completely revitalize your business. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was very shocking to me was after we did make that decision, we had customers that came up and said, oh, I'm so glad he's not here. He was always talking down to me. Or um, I heard him blow people off when they came into the store. Or I heard him saying negative things about the business. Wow. And people don't always say those things to you when the person's working there. But if you have a feeling that something's wrong, I mean, in this economy, everyone is responsible for making a business successful. And if that person doesn't care enough about you know, the company surviving, he's not only jeopardizing his job, but your job, your business, and everyone else who works there. And these people have families. So imagine if you knew that one of your coworkers was single-handedly impacting the success of the business. You would, you'd want them gone, too. It's subtle sabotage, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, what else do you think we need to say to our listeners? I, I thought your idea about customer service was very valuable because you talk about, you say this in a form, a form that I've kind of always thought about. Treat each customer as though that person was the very first customer. And I think sometimes when we have people who come in and use our business and we become familiar with them, we sort of take them for granted and forget that we need to concentrate on them and that they are our customer and that they are the bottom line for our business. Yeah. Well, we we came up with that answer to people that were asking us, what do I need to do to get my customers to really like my business? And every business is different, but what we realized is Everyone remembers that opening day and that first person that walked in the door. Right. You know, the very first person that called off your ad, the very first person that came into your business and said, yes, I want this, I want to do business with you. And your, your, your day, just the way you treated them, you were so excited. You were polite, happy, upbeat, um, flexible. If, you, if they needed something, you were willing to listen. You were willing to try to figure out what, they were, what information they were giving you about your products and services and how that can make your business better. And then, you know, years go by, and frankly, the stress of owning a business sometimes overrides the way you know you should be behaving. So that was why we kind of answered that question like that, because if you really go back and you remember, most business owners know what really brought in the people those days. And if you can go back to that, I mean, right now, customer service is such a big deal in this economy. People are spending money. They're not thrilled about it, but if you go into a place and people treat you really well and they give you good quality products and good quality service, you remember that and you tell your friends. And that can be the difference for business between growing and stagnating. And, you know, the bottom line, I think, is really a key. It's one word, and it's attitude. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I I really think that describes so much, and I think that often, especially younger workers, don't understand that 
how they feel about themselves and their job and their lives is just written in huge block letters all over their face. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. And one thing that's that really resonates with me is that if you have a business that's succeeding and that you, you're committed to growing that business and your employees know that, their attitude actually changes. I mean, it, you have got to make sure that they know that you're in it for the long haul because if they see you waver, frankly, they are going. that's going to be reflected with their way of dealing with you, the customers, and whether or not they even leave. But when they know you're 100% committed, like our employees know we are going to be there, we're trying to grow the business, we spend you know, days and nights thinking about it, trying to figure out ways of doing things better, and they know there's an opportunity to really grow with a company that's going to be growing. So they don't feel like this is a summer job. You know, they know that this is something we're going to do long-term and that they can be part of something long-term. They can build a career. Let's talk about the Computers for Soldiers program that you guys instituted a couple of years ago. Yeah. Tell me about well, my, this was my husband's brainchild. Um, he was a, a veteran of Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and that w- had a very big impact on him. And when he came back, and he has other friends that stayed in the military and are now deployed overseas, he was trying to figure out for a very long time, what else can we do to really help the military that are deployed? And as a business owner, I mean, obviously he can't just re-enlist at this point in his life, um, that would kind of be everything would stop. So he was trying to think, what can he do with what he has available to try to help? And he came up with the Computers for Soldiers program. So what we basically do is we find computers that we can buy at wholesale, you know, hundreds of them at a time, and figured out the lowest price to fix them up and get them out the door to customers that were military. Our goal in the program was to try to make sure that the people who are deployed can stay in touch with their loved ones for a really low price. Because, you know, computers can be so expensive. So for $200, we figured out we could get them a webcam and a really nice laptop that is a business class machine that's off-lease and get it out to them and have them actually stay in touch. So it's been, it's really taken off. Um, We've been to a couple bases in just the last couple of months that we were invited out there to talk to the military to let them know about the program and to, you know, see what else we can do to help them. And it's just been really such a warm reception we received. We've gotten hundreds of these computers out all over the country. We send them overseas to the people who are deployed. And and it's just been a really nice way to be able to give back to the community. You know, when things are going well, it's nice to be able to help somebody else. Oh, I thought it was a fabulous program, and I wanted to make sure that we talked about it. Now, we are running out of time, so if, bottom line, you could leave our listeners with a few takeaways from the book, what would you like to leave them with, Lynn? The biggest thing is that it is a tough economy, but there are so many ways to grow your business right now and so many opportunities. And there's just no reason not to start doing it. There are new services to sell. There are ways to reduce your inventory. There are ways to increase your customers. And it's just about finding those ways for your business and doing it now. Because you know what? The economy is going to rebound, and the businesses that are there and and know how to survive in this economy are going to be perfectly positioned to be able to continue to grow as the economy gets back on its feet. 
Lynn, I thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. If our listeners want to know more about 19 Ways to Survive Small Business Strategies for a Tough Economy, more about you, more about your husband, more about the store, more about the Computers for Soldiers program, give me a website that they could go to. Um, Well, the Computers for Soldiers has its own website, computersforsoldiers.com, and so does the book. So it's 19waystosurvive.com. And those two will get you most of what we do. But we're a little nuts, so. <laughs> well, you have been so much fun. And you, I think you have given our listeners, hopefully, hope and some ideas, if they're already in business for themselves, about some new strategies and new things that they can do. So thanks so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, Pick up a good book and read.